0: Welcome aboard the USS Aeronome. To become a member of our crew, please visit PerfectOrganism.com slash support. As a patron of Perfect Organism, you'll receive exclusive perks and early access to content. Incoming audio transmission received. Please proceed to subdeck 3 to begin playback. Thank you, and welcome aboard. think we ought to discuss the bonus situation. Right, Brett and right. I. We think we ought to. We deserve full shares, right? right. You see, Mr. Park and I feel that the bonus situation is.
1: Move! Get out of there! You move don't. Move, don't. move don't. Get out! Oh. <sighs>
0: You still don't understand what you're dealing with, do you? Perfect organism. Its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility.
1: You admire it. I admire its purity.
0: A survivor. Unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. Look, I'm, I've heard enough of this, and I'm asking you to pull the plug. Last word. What? I can't lie to you about your chances, but... You have my sympathies. Welcome to Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast. I'm your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my host,
1: Patrick Green. How are you doing, my friend?
0: I'm doing well. I'm doing well. My belly is full. <sighs> Life is. My okay. belly is
1: full too. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> and so,
1: Angela. So, once again, we started uh, this live stream before we started recording. We're going to get the hang of this at some point. I've already walked everybody through how nauseous I am because I had Mexican food <laughs> and then played basketball. I'm not going to rehash that. But uh, what I what I was saying before is is how. Uh, I feel pretty emotional in addition to feeling nauseous because we are addressing a character who is so iconic and so important and has deserved his own full episode um for as long as we 've done this podcast as long as you 've done this podcast um, and we 're just now finally after the death of Ian Holm dedicating a full um a full hour 's episode to to ash
0: yeah um i you know as I was thinking about ash by the way we 're coming up on Patrick's three years of being with Perfect Organism. Three fucking years.
1: That's true. Like Isn't that
0: crazy? She it is like crazy. Yesterday. And um, we're also
1: coming up very rapidly. Probably by the time this goes out on our stream, we will have passed it on our 10,000th Facebook
0: fan. Maybe. Facebook like. We're a couple hundred away from that. Um we're really that's creeping a, up. We are. And we're hosting a huge giveaway. Huge giveaway. I've shared... Um, pictures of what we're giving away it's like a bunch of books comics great shit um so that's going to be an episode where we're going to talk about how we're giving it away you got to listen all sorts of, but whoever gets it it's it's going to be awesome you're gonna um, get us but, like
1: so much so much shit oh i kind of want to like make a fake profile and then like it as a 10,000s person just like so we have get a that. bunch of other
0: shit to give away too you can just, well, give me, Jimmy. You just give it to I me, Jamie. I can. I have a box I have. <laughs> I've been meaning to send you in the mail, but I have not because I hate going to post offices. I just do. I, hate I know,
1: going. me too. All right, well, you you, you, you got go. something coming your way too. Anyway, go.
0: um, you know well, who else has things can... coming their way?
1: Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Are you psyching are you the same thing I'm doing? Patreon, there we go, yes, exactly. Okay. So uh, so we have gone far too long, far, far, far too long without giving official recognition to our new patrons. Um, as we mentioned on some of the other episodes we've had lately, we are just... Bold over with gratitude and appreciation for those of you who have stuck with this show. Many of you have been here now since we started the program. We have people who are still original patrons who contribute every single month. And we have people who have joined during COVID, during these crazy, crazy, crazy times when there's so much uncertainty, and people who've joined while we've been giving away Patreon content to everybody to help people through quarantine. So people who are giving willingly during a time where they don't even really quote unquote need to because they're already getting the content anyway and they're just doing it to support the shows that we're doing and we, and we really appreciate that. I mean, it, it's bringing, bringing tears to my eyes. I don't know, it could be that and also the enchiladas that I'm fighting to keep down right now, but I think it's mostly just how emotional I am about this. Um, instead of just going through the new patrons, we're going, I'm just gonna go you know, very, very quickly down our full list of active supporters. Um, and if you would like to join these people, again, all you have to do is go to perfectorganism.com support, or go to patreon.com and look up Perfect Organism. You get a lot of stuff in addition to the, to the episodes that, you know, you've been getting to enjoy some of on this, you know, quarantine uh, free period. Uh, you know, you also will get discounted merchandise at certain levels. Uh, you'll get, um, at certain levels, you'll be invited to come on the show to talk with us directly. There's other things in there too, so check it out. slash support
0: Minimum one thousand dollars. I'm kidding. Minimum one thousand dollars. <laughs> one thousand dollars. You can come on the show just once. <laughs> That's all.
1: All it takes is just it, it, we're gonna be like Jeremy Piven with his fucking. Uh, oh
0: my God! Yeah. What's that? You what's that, that service that? called? Like a cameo or something.
1: Yeah, cameo. It's, oh my God! Fifteen thousand
0: dollars. But actually, minimum is two dollars. You can sign up. You can get all of our Patreon shows. Uh, which is shit show, which is also frame rate. we t- me and Patrick are talking about another show. Yo, I
1: want to do that. I don't care. I know. I, I know. I do too. Do I, I want to do that. Let's
0: just do it. Music is part do of it. Music, the mo- music of movies is as part of my life as movies are. I listen yeah. to soundtracks much like you every fucking day. Oh, I know. Um, I probably I've been listening to the score to the Black Stallion ad nauseum all the time. But so we've been talking about having a uh, the soundtracks of our lives series be That'd be Patreon great. or something. I think it would be amazing. I'd be like, I'm not doing frame rate anymore. <laughs> no, i kidding.
1: Cause, cause, cause Jamie and I, when we talk about film scores, we go off the deep end and those episodes are always so much fun. So if anybody listening to this would like access to that, we are reverting back to our paid normal model, um, in August.
0: For $5,000 so- you can get. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> Exclusive access. All right, so anyway, so our, our supporters, again, d- just thank you so freaking much. We have yes. Xander Gates, Andy Ev, Ben Fletcher, Brendan Lutner, Burke Burnett, Carla Rosa, Chase Cupo, CL11B, Craig Wright, Dan Ferlito. We all kind of are, are our own patrons too, but that's besides the point. Daniel Purple Tree, Darren Gold, Dave Turner, David Benson, David Holmes, and a lot of Davids, Dom Dwight Polson, Gene McDonald, Graham Zirk, Jackie Childers, Jonas Holmston, Jordan Mason, Julian Casey, Ken S., Kyle Burton, Mark Deckard, Mike Dennis, Murray Kucharawi, Nathan Gribble, Nigel Carroll, Patrick Ayub, Paul J. Goodfellow, Peter from the Midwest, Rachel Cordy, Reno Deed, Richard Blackwell, Richie Ammons, Robert Watson, Stephen Bischoff, Stephen... Ains, Steve Appleman, Stuart Fowether, Thomas Crozes, Thurian, I think it's Thurian Lack, Tim Hazeldean, Tim Lawson, Travis Anderson, Xander House. Oh, he's on there twice. <laughs> it's okay. He's an awesome enough person that he deserves to spend that list in two places. You no,
0: know, I thought the first name was Xander Gates. You said. Oh,
1: that's right. Oh, Alexander Gates and Xander House. Sorry. Oh my God, that's right. Yeah, There's so many names now. I'm not even done yet. I'm not even done yet. I'm (laughs) I'm a little nauseous. And Zachary (laughs) Rice. Jamie, we are at a point now where reading our patrons sounds like a real podcast when they read patrons on something that takes forever. Thank Thank you guys so much. That is amazing. Something before we get into this episode, finally, I want to mention is as many of you know, well, maybe you don't, maybe not many of you, but some of you know, because we've been obliquely referencing it. We were planning on doing a live event this summer. Perfect Organism was going to have a live event in Boston. Um, we were looking at doing it in July or August. That's clearly not happening now because of COVID. Uh, but that is still 100% something that we are looking to do when it's safe to do so again. to get
0: Patrick to let me come to his house this year, but I don't think it's going
1: to happen. <laughs> Stay away,
0: Jamie. I'll be in the, the
1: mudroom. infected. Room. Um, if you want to go to that show and you want to help support it and you want to like help us do stuff like that please um, join our our Patreon program and we will make sure that you know yeah
0: we got another eventually uh, the biggest announcement in our show's history coming up at some point maybe by the end of the summer when we have some details Um, but Patrick and I and don't look at me like that you know what I'm talking about I have no clue what you're doing. Yes, about. you do. Oh, my God. Hold Can on. Can you mouth it? You. M- mouth it off the audio. No, I'm not mouthing it. I'm you're not gonna giving it away. It?
1: Oh, my God. This is so dramatic. I forgot. I forgot. No, I, I... Okay. Jamie, to be fair, you forgot we were recording tonight, and I had to remind <laughs> you, and I reminded you with a message saying, give me a couple <laughs> minutes, I
0: still have to barf. The largest announcement in uh, our podcast history... Eventually coming, and Patrick forgot he had to be. Oh, that! Oh, that! Well, yeah. Well, is yes. That, is, is that okay? Is that something? is Announced?
1: Is that something being announced? Yes. Oh! Well, I didn't even think that was announcement worthy yet. I thought that was I still think something so. we were just hoping for the next couple of. We
0: I mean, to if it's title gonna title. happen,
1: that's a fucking yeah. huge announcement.
0: Yeah.
1: Wow. Okay. Well, that, well, stay tuned because now what now I can see what he was referring to, um, and that is something that is extremely exciting. And yeah. it's no longer just a pie in the sky. It's something that we've wanted to do for many years now and finally seem to be in a place where it could actually happens. Yes. And it is not going to be revealed tonight because we're going to get to
0: <laughs> the episode. Uh, but, Moving on to our episode, we're here to talk about Astro. Here to talk about an iconic android robot AI um, in the science fiction genre. Uh, it's a role and it's 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 a character that Ian Holm embodied and created. And so many androids after him have fallen, have come from his legacy. They are who they are because he was who he was and his performance and who that character was. Um, but I wanted to start off. Talking about Ash, because Ash reminds me of AI. Um, I'm going to ask you, a specific AI that came before him, and maybe this is easy for you, but Ash is like the human version of that.
1: Yeah, Yeah. I know. Well, there's a reason for that, Jamie. First off, it's HAL 9000 you're talking about. So, so, and, And that was Ridley Scott instructed him to do that, which is why it came across that way. And I think you're absolutely right. And part of the genius of Ian Holm and Ridley Scott is seeing that and making it work because before that film, before alien artificial intelligence in movies was either something completely futuristic, you know, computer mainframe speaking to somebody controlling a spaceship, or it was something B movie. It was a, it was a robot with fucking cardboard boxes on it, shuffling around like, you know, forbidden planet style. Right. Um, but, but the idea of a completely interactive humanoid cyborg that called no attention to its very cyborgness was something genuinely interesting and novel. And that was something that. Ridley was very, very particular about because early on when they were discussing the script and when Ian Holm was looking at if he was interested or not, which he was because in addition to being this, you know, know, lauded Shakespearean actor, he'd always had a a soft spot in his heart for science fiction, for B movies, for genre films, he had no pride about, you know, slumming it, quote unquote. And he thought the script was really good. So he he didn't really need very much convincing. But he did. I guess we can get kind of into the episode. He did have a lot of questions about how to pull this off. Because for one thing, he had never played, you know, a robot before. He had played always characters who were either based on real people. A lot of, you know, Shakespeare is based on actual people who live, right? A lot of stage plays and things, and a lot of the British films that he was in, they were they were semi semi-biographical films and things like that. Or based on characters who were like clearly, you know, an archetype, or they fit into some kind of a category of like, you know, a hero or a sidekick or a villain or just a, a person, right? And so coming at this with this idea of a, of a robot who was sort of designed to be ambiguous, he didn't didn't know how that was going to work. And Ridley said to him, it needs to basically be, he asked he asked if Ian Holm liked Kubrick and knew his work, and Ian Holm was like, yes, of course I do. And he at, talked about HAL 9000, and he said, if we can basically make HAL 9000 into a into a person that lives and breathes and is undifferentiable from a, a computer... Uh, from a human rather, then, uh, then that will be what Ash is. And so that was the angle that he came to it from. And that's why you probably see a lot of HAL 9000 in Ash.
0: What's interesting though, that the subtle difference, which might be subtle or not, is HAL 9000 seemed very warm. There's a very like, hello, Dave, how are you? Whereas there was also a starkness to that delivery. Ian Holmes, Ash was the starkness without the warmth. He had no warmth about that character. There was no, sometimes there was a puzzlement. He was puzzled. He was like staring, watching. He did not have warmth, which made him terrifying.
1: One of the great things about his character, and one of the the reasons why I always look for him in scenes is what he's doing in the background. When there's dialogue happening elsewhere and you can see him doing what you're saying, just sort of coolly observing, like he's always an outsider, even among outsiders, he's just sort of watching um in in a crew that is so human that's so warm that's so normal and you know boisterous and buddy buddy and rowdy and you know just blue collar salt of the earth you have the science officer who is completely apart from them the entire time and doesn't try, like you're saying, he doesn't try to assimilate. Like he doesn't make a big deal about trying to be funny or trying to fit in or trying to be, to trying to be quirky or something. Like he is just a like pretty clear plant that they just don't notice as a plant until it's too late.
0: Yes. Um, but I think as the audience, we, well, I, I don't know. I'm trying to think of my first viewing. I don't know if I can remember my first viewing of Alien, but I I don't know if you remember either. But how did you view him? Do you remember when you first realized he was an android? What that was like for you? Or did you know before you saw it?
1: And I knew before I saw it, just because people had told me about that, which which sucks. I still, to this day, when I watch it, wonder what it would have been like, because everybody talks about how the chestburster was so shocking, right, when it came out. But can you imagine, like, not knowing what was going to happen when when Yafit koto smashes his head off with a, with a fire extinguisher, <laughs> like that would have been so frightening to just all of a sudden have this decapitated milk spurting robot shuffling around making baby noises. Like, I mean, it must've been so confusing for people and so terrifying, but yeah, I, I, I already knew cause it had been spoiled for me, but I do remember still feeling kind of surprised because I kind of liked him, you know, I, like I, I kind of liked that he was like, I mean, because he he does like the quote-unquote human thing, right? Like he lets Kane back on the ship. I mean, he does these things that, as an audience member, in the moment, you're sort of like, good, you know? Like he's he's breaking protocol for the right reasons. Like you know, you have no you have no way of knowing what his real. See, I
0: never out. picked that up. At least on my end, I didn't feel like he was opening up the the hatch or the 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 bay door for because he was being human and doing the right thing. I felt like the entire time and feel like the entire time Ash, and maybe it's just my j- judgment is clouded now because I've seen the film so many times, but he, ne- he only seemed interested in the specimen. Um, and you could tell when he was watching, he was watching them walking and it was eerie. Those moments when Ash is watching them and he's saying good, good view on my board or whatever, um, and they're walking out slowly. That's some of the best cinema I have ever seen. I that love moment, that. I might have to watch that tonight. When the, when he watches them walk out to the derelict, and then oh, I'm fucking watching that movie tonight. Um, <laughs> I'm just imagining <laughs> the
1: spirit is moving you. Oh, it, is when, it when, is. when he's just sitting there in that cockpit and he's watching the recording, he's watching the the transmission, and he's just sort of like shuffling around and like doing his thing and like waiting. Yeah, that's that's extraordinary filmmaking. But, but I, I, think, I think the first time you saw it, Jamie, back 752 years ago, I think that you probably did not have that interpretation of it. I know that I, I obviously can't watch it now. I can't watch it now and not pick up on those things, right? But the first time you see it, if you really don't know what's going on, like, there's no reason for you to think anything other than he's a scientist. Like, he's objective. That's he's true. somebody who's sort of, you know, he's analytical, Right it's also it's literally his job to be analyzing specimens like he's there to do that right he's there to to you know to as a science officer Mm -hmm. so there's nothing necessarily outside of his programming in that regard special order 937 of course is but other than that um he kind of acts within clear acceptable boundaries until Mm -hmm. he doesn't anymore
0: yeah because everybody's different and even ripley she's not your stereotypical woman the way we've talked about this ad nauseum where she was a little bit like, or a lot of it like business. Let's, what are we here to do? Let's do it. Um, Certainly towards the end you see her weepy and cry, but she's also very stoic and Ash is very stoic as well. So it isn't outside of this, you know, it's, he's not like, Oh my God, he's acting strange. He's just a different personality like all the rest of them are. Even Dallas to some degree is very turned off from, the rest of the crew. He doesn't really like. He's in. His, he's in his in his mind all the time. And Ash is sort of a version of that with a little bit less warmth. Um, but he, it's fascinating. And what I loved, I think, in terms of the legacy of Ash, even though we're not talking about Bishop, is instead of doing the evil robot thing again, they went and made him a good robot in, in *Aliens*. Um, but I, Ash is just. He was the alien on the ship before they knew there was an alien on the ship. Um, he was the danger to all of them before they realized the alien that came from Kane's chest was the danger to all of them. I mean, his, he represents, especially as we've seen film after film, uh, one of the films that comes to mind right now is Ex Machina and her playing, um, what's the character's name? Um, the redheaded guy or Domhnall oh. is it the actor? Uh, 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 oh, I, I can't, can't remember his, his name. name. Timothy, I don't know. Um he looks like a Timothy. Um but He
1: does look like a Timothy. <laughs> but yeah, Dom Hall Gleason, yeah.
0: Um but much like Ash, she had a role to play and she played it really well. And she hit all the right notes until she was free. And much of who she was, I think, is owed to who Ash was. I mean, he set up what androids look like in space. And there was of course, Star Wars was the big, well, Star Wars in 2001, but Star Wars was the big action sci-fi blockbuster before then, which had only released the first film. But there was no real Android except for R2-D2. I mean, he was an Android for sure, but he wasn't a humanoid Android. He was more
1: Well, a, C-3PO was closer to being Sorry, C-3PO, I didn't it. mean to say <laughs> <laughs> r two two is not exactly convincingly humanoid i fucking um, love i want i want to take a second hang on r two d two is such an underrated character in the history underrated. of film no I, I mean i mean no 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 because because he's a bucket yet he has such and a range of expression it is mm-hmm. absolutely amazing mm-hmm. and that bucket has actual screen presence which is just just astounding to me and 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 i i feel like you know, with, with in, in the sequels, you know, with Dio and BB-8 and things, they're adorable, but, they're, but they lack that certain kind of gravitas that R2-D2 had. r 2 d a fucking hero, you know what I, I mean? Think, I think I BB-8
0: had the gravitas. Um, and, you know, it's also interesting, which you haven't seen yet, uh, where you can put on, you can get emotions out of something that's sort of inanimate. The Dark Crystal Age of Resistance. I think you need to watch that. <laughs> <laughs> which came out almost a year ago now. I've seen the,
1: most of the first episode. I I'll I, I I will at some. I'm not. I'm like a huge. I'm not a huge fantasy person, Jamie. I'm I really. Know. I'm okay. really just not. That's fine. I'm, just I'm not. That. I, I at fine. at some point. At some point, I'll get into Dark Crystal. That's fine. I understand. Maybe we'll see. <laughs> um, so I think that uh, that going back from Art 2 d 2 That that brings me back to the point that I was making earlier, which is that our concept of what physicalized artificial intelligence was was very cartoony comparatively before Alien, right? because you look at a movie like Star Wars, which came out very close to when Alien came out, it was in production just a couple of years earlier than it. Right, and that's a movie full of robots and full of artificially intelligent robots. There's, there's, you know, sand crawlers full of them, right? And what do they look like? They look like trash cans. They look like, you know, B movie aliens from other movies that that you know made thirty years earlier. They looked so so out of place that you could never cross that uncanny divide between what was human and what wasn't. What's amazing with Ash, what's amazing with Ian Holm is that he lives in that uncanny valley the entire film. To a point more so than Bishop, and more so than David, and more so than Walter. Ian Holm as Ash is right in that level where he really could just be human but he's not. He's like so 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 close to it, right? Part of that I think is because Lance Hendrickson for example kind of by default looks alien to begin with. Like there's mm-hmm. just something so 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 captivating about what he looks like and how he acts, you know what I mean? He just seems otherworldly. The part of it I think is because Uh, Michael Fassbender is so perfect looking you know in a way I think because he's so beautiful that he kind of seems like he could have been constructed right as Mm -hmm. this sort of like Mm -hmm. this like perfect humanoid thing
0: he's got that Gigolo Joe aura about him
1: yeah he just looks like this like this beautiful construct right Mm -hmm. Ash is an imperfect asymmetrical very real looking person right Mm -hmm. he's not particularly strong looking. So when he actually becomes so strong later, it's it's really scary. He doesn't seem particularly menacing because he seems sort of meek. He doesn't seem like he's trying too hard to fit in because he kind of doesn't need to because he just sort of, he's he's the sort of person who slips under radars, right? He's the sort of person who is, is you know, in a group of friends growing up in high school Who's kind of who's kind of sticks to the peripheries, and then you know when they grow up, they either do something great with their lives or they become like a murderer. You know, he's mm-hmm. one of those one of those people who's just sort of a quiet outsider who's always observing, and um, and I think that that approach is extraordinary. As is what you mentioned earlier about his coldness, and that's something that I think I haven't really thought about until you said it, because I I similarly always think of Hal Nine Thousand when I think of Ash because functionally they're kind of similar, mm-hmm. um, but. But Hal Thousand, part of what's so incredibly compelling about his character, and we're about to do a, a frame rate on 2001 A Space Odyssey, spoiler alert, so we'll be talking more about him shortly, is that you almost want to fall into his voice. You, know, you almost want to just lay down next to him and let him sing you to sleep. You know, you almost, you, you, there's a sense of, of real calm about him. Um, Ash is nothing like that. Ash yeah. is a razor. He's a razor glinting in the background the entire time.
0: That's what one of the things that makes Al Hal Nine Thousand—I almost said Al Nine Thousand—legendary <laughs> <laughs> <Al 9, 000. laughs> uh, in high school football. Yeah. <laughs> but what makes Hal Nine Thousand—I almost said it again—is when he starts becoming diabolical, he continues that. I don't think I can do that, Dave. He still continues that warmth, that, and it's like this—it's this ironic dichotomy of. I'm about to kill you, but I love you. You know, whereas Ash doesn't do that. Ash is clearly defined. Um, but Ash, at least with Hal 9000, he's making his overtures very clear. Um, he's very clear on what he wants to do or what he doesn't want to do. Whereas with Ash, you just don't know. And I do love what you're talking about in terms of he isn't, Ian Holm is just at just this every man. He looks very, he just looks. Kind of frumpy just but that's the brilliance of him being an android he just passes quote unquote he passes as human no one questions him if he was really overly handsome um over he was a female and he was very beautiful um people might think oh he's a little too perfect so it's what's interesting about his character is in the writing um they decided to not make him perfect, because that's always the default for, for androids, make them perfect. Um, when in fact, if you want to get the job done, make them imperfect, which will freak people out even more. Like, because we have this idea of what robots should do, what, and even today, as we, we live with people whose cars drive them um, or park themselves or come to them. Um, crazy the time that we're living in right now um we expect it to we expect it to act a certain way and do a certain thing we have expectations on artificial intelligence those expectations were not met with with ash and that's his brilliance because that means he can get away with doing research or paying extra attention to other things because nobody suspects anything
1: you, that's a really good point he's he's he we expect artificial intelligence implicitly means we, we expect it to announce itself we expect it to make itself clear that it's not us right and it's kind of part of the bargain we make when we work with AI is we put things in place to wall it in we put things in place to to to, to close it off from ourselves a little bit so we can always otherize it we can control it um, and when AI is weaponized it's usually in ways where it's it's people try to make it indistinguishable from from human you know activity so like you know the turing test is a great example of this right um and ash is 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 an amazing example of a character who would pass the turing test absolutely instantaneously because mm-hmm. you wouldn't know he was an android until he started leaking fluid right mm-hmm. like there's there's no way to tell which of course also lends credence to this notion that the company at this point wasn't manufacturing androids publicly you know that like i mean when when i watch it i mean i know that they say like he's a goddamn android like they're aware that androids exist Mm -hmm. right but i don't think any of them i think that they should have that there probably was an agreement that they should have signed at some point when they were going on that particular mission to or that job to um that there was going to be artificial intelligence on board so that they would sign off on it other than of course mother who is again you know gated off from a lot of things because she is operating within protocols as a management system for the vessel that they're riding on right mm-hmm. she can't punch them she can't she can't like poison them i guess she could well yeah i guess she could do that but anyway but but my point being that like it's clear because she's a disembodied voice mm-hmm. that she's not a human on the ship right ash to me feels like the company was sneaking these earlier models on board for nefarious purposes that go far away and above and beyond just the Xenomorph. Right. I mean, part of the beauty of, of this universe and the unexplored beauty of it is that the, the company was, had its tentacles in everything, you know, and they were exploring so many different different frontiers of commercialism in space and of exploitation in space. And they probably had androids doing this shit all over the place, completely subversively and without announcing themselves. And I find that really scary. Um, can I read a quick little exchange? Oh, sure. For, between Scott and and Ian Holm? This is from uh, Ian Holm's biography um, or autobiography called "Acting My Life," um, which is which is really really good. So he's talking a little bit about when he got the script. And, uh, and when he was talking to Scott about the casting, and Scott said, I want Alien to move this kind of film up to the next level. I don't want it to be one of those low budget sci-fi things. And then Ian Holmes said, you want me to play Ash, the science officer? Ridley nodded. And uh, Ian said, is he a robot? And Ridley said, yes, a bit like the mother computer in 2001, but broken down into a person. Well, sort of. Do you know Kubrick? Blah, 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 blah. And then he said, and then Ian said, why is the change to a person, a robot person? And Ridley said, we were thinking that one day all computers will talk. It's an extension of that idea. So I want to go back for a second and think about how prescient that is, right? But also how interesting it is in the concept of when this came out. So in 1969, you know, we obviously went to the moon, right? Um, And the computer system that got us there was a computer system that was designed to be interacted with with a series of nouns and verbs. It was literally called a noun-verb system. So the astronauts who were piloting you know, the, the, the vessel would say, um, you know, noun X, verb Y. And then the spaceship would act accordingly to it by interpreting what they were saying. Because people didn't have enough fluency with with programming at that point, you know, and astronauts had a million other things in their mind that they didn't wanna be typing code out, you know, in this, with their gloves on, right? It would have been impossible. Um so like so this was already a concept that was working in technology at the time. like people were already talking a lot about speaking with computers. Um, but what we weren't seeing yet was this idea of speaking with a living computer that you could touch and And I think what's so cool about the way Ash has realized is he seems at once like aspirational sci-fi like Isaac Asimov like there's there's an element of him that is like Star Trek, you know that's like how cool is it that we can have these like interactive super robots that can just join us and sort of slip into the ranks of the people around them and get amazing work done in space, you know, never have to sleep. They never have to, you know, bathe. They never have to eat. They can just do all of our work for us and just sort of chill as one of the crew members, right? Um, But he also, at the same token though, is, is, is playing with fears about that concept that people in the late 1970s probably weren't even aware that they had yet. And I think much like the Xenomorph, and the burster, you know, and, and, and all the different incarnations of it in the facehugger, et cetera, was Daniel O'Bannon's way of plumbing fears that a lot of, you know, men didn't realize they had. A lot of men, I don't think, realized how afraid they were of childbirth or how afraid they were of, of rape, you know? Um, I think a lot of people in the 1970s cinema probably didn't realize how afraid they were of artificial intelligence because it wasn't something that was really in the zeitgeist yet. Um, and I think part of the lasting relevance of this film, to me, is that it is playing on a lot of different fears that we have that we don't talk about very frequently because of course, artificial intelligence now is all over everything that we're doing. It's all it's, it's in all of our interactions. It's in all of the data mining of this call that we're ongoing. I mean, everything that is happening,
0: listening to our conversations, guiding us where we should go, giving us uh, advertisements, crazy, sometimes very personal things. Yeah. It's nuts.
1: Like the, just the other day I was, we were looking at getting a new mattress Um, and I was doing it on my phone and Micah got a push notification about from the same mattress company. And I, I didn't even like put my information in or anything, but because of the cookies that I had, they could tell we were married and in the same house and they sent her an advertisement, which of course is like a pretty rudimentary form of AI, but it's something that it's just, we're so used to that we're not even noticing it anymore. Um, and, you know, I wrote a whole, a whole piece of music on this a few years ago called Machine Language for Beginners that um, speaks to some of these fears that we have. And one of and the reason I wrote it was because I realized at some point that I was talking to my iPhone 4S so much that I didn't, I didn't even think of it as a tool anymore. I thought of it as a person next to me because I was asking it about what the weather was going to be like. And I was asking it if I needed to like, you know, pack something, what my schedule was for the day. And I was just on the train having a conversation with my phone and not even thinking about the fact that that was like happening, Right. So now this is absolutely everywhere, but in the, in the late 1970s, this was something that was so futuristic and so far off and then played so realistically. And I think that's just amazing.
0: Mm-hmm. It's, it's Yeah, it's incredible. It's scary um, because I think also when we think of AI, or at least in the earlier days of AI and the idea of we see it in films and what it is that it's very sub- subservient to us. It's there for our needs. It's there to do what we want to. and so if it starts to malfunction and take over it becomes terrifying um where the created then becomes um our enemy um so we've effectively yeah we've there's so there's so many layers of of fear there um but ash became that fear he became and then of course the idea of when they says he's a goddamn android it reminds me of isolation where you have those uh, working Joes. And so I, it seemed like the the, um, the crew of Nostromo, probably like everybody else who worked in space, knew that, yes, there are Androids and this is where they work. And they're shocked that there was one on board. Um, they Because that's not where they work, that's not where they're allowed to be. Um, but it, again, it, it plays into the nefarious qualities of Wayland Jutani, what they were doing, their own, you know, probably they had heard about obviously this this planet before, so they sent an operative who they programmed to do their bidding, um, and that's terrifying as well, very very terrifying. Not so much that okay maybe there's an android who malfunctioned, which I love Ripley's line where when uh, Burke says uh, another droid malfunctioned, she goes malfunction because he didn't he was created or he was programmed to do what he did. Right, right. Absolutely. And so Burke Burke spun that um, to make it seem like deaths were involved, blah, 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 blah. Um, But yeah, I think Ash is so important because who our greatest enemy is as as humans is us. And so then you take that extension, who is also our, we've also then made a version of ourselves and they've become our enemy too um so it's it's this snowball i mean it's it's almost too much to think about um that man is not only their our own worst enemy we've also created them as well and we've we've created them to turn on you if we if we need them to because you you're you're expendable and what we're doing is bigger than you and ash represented all of that and part of ash's his charisma, if you could call it that, was you really didn't know what he was thinking. You did not know what he was thinking. When he was sitting in the mother room with Ripley, you didn't sort of talking with her, but she's sort of looking at him like, what? Like, she, you don't know what's going on in his head. Something's been clicked in. Um, I don't even know how he got in that room in the first place. Like, it sounds like <laughs> I love
1: that. Though. It's a little bit like the, the queen in the Dropship moment, right? Where it's yeah, like,
0: well, I love that, I that, that they don't explain it, it though. I mean, he no, probably me got in there. He probably opened it and quietly came in. Um, yeah. And her chair turned around so she didn't see him. She's probably so involved in...
1: I think she was so yeah. soaked yeah. up in what she was reading that she wouldn't that she wouldn't have noticed anything
0: yeah. happening. Right? Yeah. yeah. He's just, uh, I mean, every aspect of him as a character the way ian holm played him was pitch perfect spot on
1: and what i think is important to understand about the way that alien plays on our fears is that in addition to illuminating things we don't know we're afraid of it's it's illuminating things behind those things that we're afraid of that we actually are really afraid of just like you were saying like, Ash obviously poses, like, a physical threat to them because of the special order and because, you know, the crew is expendable and blah, blah, blah. But that, once you understand that, isn't that scary? Because once you get that, then you can kind of say, okay, it's, it's like, a, it's a, not a rogue robot, but it's like, a, it's an evil robot. Like, I've seen this before. I understand mm-hmm. what they're up against now. What's scary is why that happened. What's scary is who programmed him to do that. What's what's scary is who wrote Special Order 937. That is what's scary. And then what's really scary about that is why. Why would somebody do that? Why would a company devalue human life that much? Why would they be allowed to do that? And what was really scary to me is how immediately understandable it is in the context of the capitalist legacy of the late 20th century. Because you look at something like fucking Agent Orange. You look at something like Three Mile Island. You look at the amount of cover-ups and fuck-ups and actual dangerous acts committed by atrocious governments. Who have gotten away unscathed from it? You look at bombings going on in Syria. You look. You look at completely displaced people. You look at the at the camps in Rohingya right now. You look at what happened to Myanmar. You look at the shit. And you look at people just going going on, you know? And and tribunals might be declared. People might, a a couple of lackeys might be accused of a war crime and go to jail. But at the end of the day, these people are fine. Nobody's touching them. Look at the fucking Panama Papers, right? Look at that shit. That was crazy. And that was like four years ago and nobody talks about it anymore. Because rich and powerful people can get away with fucking anything. And Special Order 937 in the scheme of the legacy of what humans do to each other is would barely even register as evil. It is something that is so completely normalized for ultra rich corporations to get away with. Yeah. Look at Amazon, Jamie. Look at PG&E. Look at what fucking, right. But look at what Amazon is doing with COVID right now. Right? Yeah. Like they yeah. know that they have company that they have employees who are sick, who are still going into work every day and they're not changing things to address that. And in doing so willingly or non or unwillingly, they're actually causing deaths. In people right look at our own government and i don't want to make this into like another current events episode but look at our own government right now talking about not testing so that it looks like people are doing better than they actually are that is special order 937 100 but what's even worse about that is that special order 937 at least had a fucking goal to it right at least it was ultimately about research not where not telling people not to wear masks and, per, and just not testing for it is just saying let people die so that we look better like, yep. l- like 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 yep. just don't talk about right? Which is yep. fucking crazy to me. Well, so yeah. and I, I don't want to make it about no, that's current okay. events. I, but. I
0: understand what you're saying. I mean, that's what the part of the terror of what of who Ash was wasn't because he represented the terror of AI, it's because he represented the terror of humanity.
1: Exactly. And right. And AI is a tool more, humanity can come up with, and,
0: right? And it's one of those things where I've been thinking of too, like what humans do to each other. We live in this world that horrible things are done to children and families and people at the hands of government or or conglomerates. I mean, again, PG&E, they were poisoning the well uh, in Hinkley. And children and families died. I mean, dozens by the dozens. And they didn't give one shit until they were found out. This is what humanity does. So the alien in that room wasn't just the xenomorph. It was the first alien was Ash. But Ash was representing us. We were the threat to them we were the biggest threat to, to Ripley and to, to Dallas and to Kane and everyone else. They went in there because humans sent them in there. I mean, that's, a whole, that's Ripley's whole tirade in Aliens. She's like, we went down on company orders to get this thing. Like She's like, you sent us there because they knew what they were getting. And that's what Ash represented. He represented corporate interests. And you can't get any fucking scarier than that because if you think about films like I think about Terminator and the Terminator is bad and it doesn't really, I think if AI becomes sentient, which it might versions of it might or whatever, they're not going to give one shit about us. They're going to go off and do their own thing. Um, So that's one of the things about AI that becomes sentient and then kills humanity. I don't think that's ever going to be a thing because I just, they're going to go and they're going to infect databases and build whatever they want to or whatever, whatever it does. Um, So I'm not, So that threat of robot or android or being killed by these, like if you think about um, Ex Machina, she didn't give a shit about him, she just wanted out. That's all she wanted. Her programming was taking her emotional, well, whatever's going on in there, it's taking her outside of of that area. She didn't give one shit about what those humans did to each other. She didn't care one bit. She probably looked a little bit puzzled. She was computing, and I think Ash didn't either. Ash didn't care. His computer programming was was beyond that. And it, it just again, it pivots back to this place where it's the terror is inside the room. The call's coming from within the house because it's us, and that's what Ash was. He wasn't. Yes, he was an android, but he was an android doing um, the will of man, and you can't get get more scary than that.
1: I always think of Ash when, uh, going back to to 2001 for a second, he is is that bone in the beginning of the movie that strikes down the fellow ape. Like he is that implement thrown into the air that becomes a satellite, right? Mm -hmm. Like to me, Ash is just the tip of a spear and the person holding the spear is the actual point, is what we're actually afraid of. So all the fear in Alien about rape and about forced birth and about all these different things and about artificial intelligence running amok is actually it's actually not really fear about any of those individual things although it triggers those those feelings in us it's really fear about what we're capable of and what we're willing to sacrifice to get there and that is something that I think all of us personally, and I say this myself, are afraid of in our own lives. Like I, I have been afraid sometimes of my own ability to put blinders on to things that I've done that have hurt people. Like, like, the, and obviously not in the way where I've killed people, but like, but I, I have caused pain for people and not even been aware of it in the moment mm-hmm. that it's happening. And it's something that all of us have done since birth. And And luckily most of us, develop some sort of remorse for that or develop you know, better empathy abilities and, and try to get in front of ourselves. But there are people who just never do that and are consistently rewarded from it. And then when they get enough power, they become basically unimpeachable. And I think that, um, and I think that what's so great about Alien is that you can look at it on its surface as a movie about you know horror and a movie about being trapped in a haunted house. And you can look at it as a sci-fi movie about the dangers of space exploration or whatever. But what you really should look at it as is a journey to the heart of darkness. And that's why, of course, like Joseph Conrad is all over this thing, right? And that's why we're on the Nostromo in the first place. But it's not a journey. The heart of darkness, and we're kind of harping on the same point here because we're in agreement on this, but the heart of darkness is not the alien. The alien is just there. The alien is just existing, right? It's doing what it does biologically. The, the, The heart of darkness is already in us. And sometimes we can't see it until we're in extraordinary circumstances. Um,
0: Which begs the question, because I believe that we are good people. I think we are born, I mean, I was raised religious and they, I was, as I was raised, they're like, your heart is wicked, you're evil, blah, 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 get on your knees and ask God for forgiveness. And none of that ever made sense to me as a kid, because I thought, I feel like I'm good. I feel like I want to do good things. I don't feel evil. I never felt any of those things that they told me I, I were supposed to feel. However, and I believe people are generally good. I really, really truly believe that. But what I think happens is outside um, influences and being impressionable and not, or being taught not to speak up, not to be a whistleblower, not to cause too much of a ruckus, not to ask too many questions. So that journey to, towards the heart, heart of darkness, those things fall away. You don't, you don't, you fall in line. You, you know, you end up being a lawyer in a big firm who goes after farmers. Um, because you want to use their land for whatever, or you be, you end up being a lawyer in a firm who or working in a a company who wants a sacred Indian burial grounds for your oil um, and you don 't give one shit and all of those things didn 't happen overnight they were a a slow succession to that place, and oftentimes sometimes people wake up from that that movie. Um, and I'm getting back around to Ash, um, the movie um, Dark Waters. Did you see that with um, Mark Ruffalo?
1: No, I don't think so.
0: Based off a true story of a farm farmer in on the East Coast. Yeah, right. No, uh, oh, the cows, oh, oh, oh. All, the cows were all dying, and people were dying, yes. and um, yeah. there was the 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 water was being poisoned, much like right. PG um, and E. Um, and Mark Ruffalo's character, who I don't remember his name. He is this lawyer in this big, big firm that represents, essentially, the DuPont. Um, he's represented DuPont. And DuPont becomes the defendant in this huge case that just blows up over time. And but his, his awakening to what he was doing was slow. He had to read some things. he was reading some things and watching some things. Like, well, this doesn't make sense. But he was pushing himself to ask questions, to ask questions, what, and then to present some evidence to his superiors. and They were like, well, what the fuck are you doing? This isn't your job. You, this is where you work. What are you doing? And he had to push it and push it, and he got in trouble, and he, people started hating him, and eventually, you know, everything came out. But that succession to being awake is also the same succession in reverse to being a company man where you're going along and the hor- and horrible things are happening to Americans or to people overseas. And maybe in your, in your, uh, in your, um, what do you call that? The building where all the, the corporate buildings in whatever state or whatever country, maybe you don't feel that. Maybe you're just working to put food on the table for your family and maybe yeah, you have money, um, but you don't You've turned yourself off so much from what you're doing that you don't understand that it's causing causing irreparable harm and death in the lives of other people in other countries or the country that you live in. So bringing it back to Ash, Ash was the culmination of all of these people working together who've lost their humanity. And that's what made Ash was the representation of the loss of humanity, which is this dichotomy between Roy Batty, who is the culmination of the, of finding his humanity. That's what he was after. Um, and Ash is the antithesis of that. And that's what made him terrifying, was that every, every all of our greed, all of our lust for power, all of our lust for weapons and control, and everything was embodied in this android that looked like one of us.
1: That looked like just a guy down the street that was yeah. unassuming and just normal and a little quirky and kind of yeah. kept to himself, right? Yeah. And yet, and yet he was, he was a signifier of incredible doom. You know, I I do agree. I I think, I think the vast majority of people are really good. I really do. I think that the vast majority of people are really human. And I think that what's unfortunate is that those who aren't are, it's very easy to prey on those of us who are and get away with it, you know? And I, and, and so I do think that there is this fear that a lot of us have this, you know, usually incipient fear that we have that like, um, we will be taken advantage of in that way and we won't even know what's happened until it has happened. I got to watch Dark Waters because that, that's, I, I remember oh, when it so ca- came good. out like last year and I wanted to yeah. see it and I miss it and and as it, if it's streaming, I don't know, maybe we can do a frame rate on it. Okay. Oh yeah, that'd be, great, that'd, be that'd be great. That'd be a good one.
0: Um,
1: um, I want to make sure we have time to read comments. Read some
0: comments. Yeah, we should probably Dude. end with that.
1: Yeah, do you want to go go to that? Yeah, let's do um that. And I, I, just, I just, like, I, I just want to just call attention again to Ian Holmes ability to pull all of this off with basically like no template to work from. That's something that will always astonish me about that performance is that like he was doing all these groundbreaking things, right. And, and, and he was doing all of these things with this role that seem so kind of like uh, perfect now, but at the time, like it wasn't like he couldn't copy anybody else's performance to, to do that. Right. Um which is amazing. And another thing I thought of while you were talking, which I, I, I do want to get to comments, but I do want to flag at least for another conversation is Roy Batty, who, as you know, is like my favorite film character ever. And, and he means a lot to a lot of people represents. Yes. Like the, the apotheosis of that journey from construct to humanity. Right. Um, but what's interesting is David also does that in just in a corrupted way, because in a lot of ways, David wants to be human Right, he wants to create because he was created, he wants to own because he was owned, he wants to build because he was built, and in doing so, he gets so fixated on that that he basically develops all of the artifice of being human without any of the inner parts of being human.
0: You, and you're I think an interesting point, but continue, I'll, I'll say it in a second.
1: <laughs> all right, what's cool with Roy Batty though is that he is actually completely disinterested in being human. He doesn't give a fuck about humans. That's not like he could he he does not want to look like humans. He doesn't want to emulate humans. He thinks humans are dog shit by and large. He kills them. He's like doesn't doesn't care about that. What he wants is life, right? Ultimately. And there's something really interesting to me about the I think that would be a really cool Exploration at some point, maybe for Shoulder of Orion, or maybe as part of our. Actually, you know what? Maybe as part of our ongoing Prometheus series, we can do a crossover with Shoulder of Orion and talk about David specifically as this sort of dark coin flip side of Roy Batty, who represent two very different sides of what being human can mean. What were we going to say?
0: Well, I I've been thinking about David, and David has never really resonated with me. I think the performance is great. I don't. I, I don't. He's never really felt like a threat to me. I think because there's been no, it's murky whether in Prometheus, he's under the programming and control of the And I feel like, oh, so David starts to, I guess, malfunction and then he goes crazy and then in covenant. But I feel like what gives that power is if he's being manipulated by humans for human, for human reasons. He's not, he's just sort of flipping out and it doesn't make plausible sense because I feel like if he's going to veer off and go his own way, he's not going to give a shit about plants and aliens and xenomorphs. He's going to go and build a better AI, a female AI or something. And he doesn't. So it doesn't seem plausible to me. Whereas Ash is more terrifying because he represents us. Um, And David does not. David's sort of like, oh, I guess he's interested in the way xenomorphs are made. So be careful. That's but I'm confused by him. I'm confused by what he's after. I don't know what he's after. Um, So that's why he's never been impact impactful for me. That's why I prefer Walter, not because Walter is good, but because Walter represents the good of us. That's why I like Walter. Um, And when I end up rooting for Walter is because you're rooting for good against evil. Walter represents the best quality of who we are up against some I don't want to call David a freak of nature I don't know what's going on with David but clearly something's wrong with him um, but with Ash it's identifiable that whatever's wrong with Ash is wrong with us um, and that's what makes him scary that's why David has done nothing for me
1: yeah I I, I think that there's there's so much to to talk about there and I do I, I almost don't want to like let it rest because I really want to talk about David right oh, now too. but I do me I do too. understand that yeah I, I mean we, we, we will we will hit this early and hard that's what she said. In our Prometheus series, um, let's let's get to the comments.
0: Um, uh, again, we asked people what the, their uh, opinions were about. Ash Chavez Sturgeon says. He made me distrust all androids in movies. I even harbor suspicions towards Bishop due to Ash, as did Ripley. I know it's stated Bishop is very different, but I feel the company must be seeing through his eyes still. That's a good That's a good point, because I also think that Bishop might be responsible for that egg on the, on the dropship, which ends up on the Sulaka. We'll never know. I,
1: I think you could very very easily make a point about that, and, uh, and it would be a really cool conversation. You know what I'm remembering? I also wanted to talk about the Working Joes more we've never circled back there's, there's been a lot that's come up in this episode so far i, I want to bookmark that also because there's a there's a really cool other angle that we aren't even addressing. Like an actually this an
0: thing. interesting conversation about joy but it's not right <laughs> <laughs> we've
1: got, we got cr- crossover episodes out the uh, <laughs> there all right yeah yeah so so rick howard awesome rick says uh, a wonderful performance one that may have been too effective I had always been comfortable with the idea of androids and such being a fan of Asimov's laws of robotics and all Ash ruined that for me and reushered in more than ever paranoia around what we now commonly call AI and the reality of corporatocracy. Mm-hmm. Totally. And, and it's interesting that Rick brought up Asimov because I, I, I was mentioning that in the same context too, that like, you know, we had this idea that um, that, you know, androids are something we can control and we can build with. And what happens if, if we actually if we can't when they start building us?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so Josh Anderson says, he was terrifying. His utter indifference towards the crew, total lack of empathy towards Kane during the chestburster scene revealed his true intentions. As with Bishop and Alien 3, my favorite scene was his final interaction with the remaining crew. His glitched digitized voice remains haunting to this day. And it's probably my favorite scene in this film. Absolutely. And I love the dichotomy of Ripley talking to this, this, diabolical machine in alien and an alien three. She's talking to a machine who loves her.
1: That is a really, how do we know do we, we don't even address this a little. I know yet. we didn't oh even my do God.
0: A, I, a, a bishop. We haven't even, did we even do a Bishop episode in 40 miles? We didn't, we didn't. No,
1: we never did. No, we, oh we God. have a blind spot, Jamie. I know. We have a fucking blind spot about talking about androids more. Yes, and I think that blind drawing. spot could be true. <laughs> that's true. Except but She's, drawing. she's not quite an android. <laughs> okay. I think, I think we need to have Clara on more. This is, that's the, the, pro, the point of me saying this is I think she can help us find these blind spots because I think we're ignoring a lot of really great conversations <laughs> around these characters. Um, uh, Derek Gorney says, one of the most terrifying moments of my younger life was when he tried to kill Ripley with the magazine. Parker knocking his head off as his fluids flying everywhere to scare the absolute hell out of me. Yeah, amen, dude. That is a scary <laughs> fucking moment.
0: All right, I'll read the next two. I love it when he was spewing. That's what he said. Um, you got to read his name. Robert, uh, by Robert, Ro- Sledge. By Robert Sledge, thank you. Uh, Dave Turner says his performance in Alien was a masterclass in saying much by saying so very little. Absolutely. The, the little ticks, movements, actions all convey so, so much, obviously in hindsight. After Sigourney, my favorite performance of the ensemble and his soliloquy, silo- its structural perfection is matched only by its hostility. Oh, yeah. There, there's those, siloqui, those words. Yeah. Those words string together are just beautiful.
1: Another another interesting Roy Batty tie-in here, although I was talking about David earlier with Roy, but both of them have these amazing final speeches that they give yes, that yes. kind of become poetry, as does Hal 9000, right? Because as Hal 9000 is reverting to his earliest programming and singing Daisy, right? Like he's he's starting to basically speak in abstract poetry. And what I love about, about um, Ash's final moments is what he says sounds so beautiful. It sounds so elegant. And it sounds like him, you know, for the rest yes. of the movie, he's sort of trying to pass. So for the rest of the movie, he's being very analytical. He's being very direct. He's being very brusque. And then in his final moments, he speaks poems about this thing. And he speaks yes. poems about, and he seems like he means it when he says, you know, that he feels for them. Like, I, I you know, I, I love that.
0: That's what's interesting about that though. Yes, he seems like he means it, but he's also, also seems like he's saying, how can you guys not understand how beautiful this thing is? Right. How do you not see it the way that I see it? Like this thing is gorgeous, and it's perfect. How do you not see that? And they're right. looking at him like, "You fucking piece of shit," you know. Right. Right. <laughs> what about our lives? You know.
1: Right. But but again, that's in the grand scheme of the universe. These little lives on this trucking vessel are nothing in the company's eyes compared to the ultimate freedom they could get by harvesting xenomorphs and using you know whatever mm-hmm. they can. Um, and that's a great point also, Dave, but that's a really good comment, Dave Turner. Um, when you Third mentioned time. his tics and movements and things like that, I, I feel like, uh, you know, one of the great, I love when he's starting to lose it and like he's hitting the mobile when he's like walking around and his mouth pulling downwards, almost like he has this kind of stroke palsy going on because he's starting to physically come a little bit undone. Like mm-hmm. he's starting to have these weird twitches and, that, and, then, and then he starts feeling more like a robot, right? Like he starts feeling more like somebody that you would not mm-hmm. not look at in public, yeah, he becomes
0: right? what we fear from AI towards right. his, the end of his. But then he, like you said, he kind of ret- retreats back into his pseudo foe humanity.
1: And, and and in and in his death, he just becomes a poet, which is which mm-hmm. is brilliant, and which I think again going back to David, one of my favorite things about David's character is that he speaks, especially in Covenant, basically in long-form poetry. And I and I really like. I I know people have issues with some of those scenes in Covenant. I think those some of the best moments in that entire film are when David is just you know rhapsodizing. About creation and about life and about dreams. I mean, I, 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 I
0: live for that. I love shit. that too. I really love that. Live stuff. for that shit. I love that. And I, what I also love thinking about Ash versus Roy Batty Ash says to Deckard, but he's also saying this to humanity I want you to live. I, I'm giving you life. I'm imparting life from you from my mouth. And Ash is saying, You're about to die, and I'm not doing anything and good luck. Um, right. It's vastly different. Roy's not an android, but he comes from the line of androids. He's he's the, he's a
1: constructed uh, helper, yeah, yeah, you know? And yes, basically, yeah. yeah, it's the same thing.
0: And I still think that there's droid parts in replicants, but that's a conversation for another time.
1: That's, in another show. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so uh, did I, They're what the like hell's going sense. on? Oh, so I'm reading this one, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So Thurian says, his reveal as an android... Thank you, Thurian, for supporting our show, by the way. You were one of those names earlier, as have been a couple more people in here. So thank you, guys. Uh, Thurian says, his reveal as an an android and attack on what's left of the crew is one of Alien's finest moments, and it happens just as things are at their lowest. Just like a lot of great movies, like Jaws, for example, the bottom keeps dropping out. Under yes. them, right as the film goes along, and Aliens does this too. But a- Alien to me is a great study in this, where it seems like things can't get worse, and then like all of a sudden, not only are they worse, but they're inescapably worse. Mm-hmm. Like there's mm-hmm. there's like no like you can't like make up that loss. They're almost, unreasonably loss. worse, almost. <laughs> right, like you're going orders of magnitude down the rabbit hole. Yeah, and yeah, and and Bishop's whole Daniel comes at the at the part of the movie where, um, you know what? I, I got called out by Dan on misusing Daniel so I I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna <laughs> Revise this, and say his uh, his collapse comes at the moment in the film where it is probably the worst uh, for it to possibly happen. Everybody.
0: Yeah. Um, so Esteban Quinones, honestly, Ash was the first android that we know of so far for William yutani He didn't show much emotion or expression. He was truly a heartless android, and he didn't and he didn't do everything he could to try and take I think the he alien back did. to the company. He did, and okay, he did. He did everything he could to try and take the alien back to the company. For sure he did. Yeah. Um, very true, all of that.
1: Totally. Ken Sobecki, This one is a little bit long, so I might skip around a little bit, but I'm, I'll get going. It says, Ash was easily the most disturbing character in the film. Ian Holm's portrayal of the idiosyncrasies of Ash's programming and behavior presets, just enough oddballish gravitas to it so that the viewer is unnerved, but ultimately made to feel as though Ash is nothing to be feared. The hints that are dropped as we observe him through the film begin to mount and the sense that this quote-unquote man at least knows or suspects more than he lets on becomes an element that the viewer must reconcile while also wallowing in the a breakdown of trust amongst the crew and coming to terms with a threat that is the eventual arrival of Kane's son. Ian Holmes' performance shifts from the presentation of Ash early in the film as knowledgeable but aloof, but unfortunately for the crew, emerges as the actual villain, maybe even more so than the xenomorph itself, due to his unknown priorities and allegiance to the company. Um, And then he basically says that he represents all that is truly evil in this universe, just like we were saying earlier. And he says that it's the most terrifying character for him in the film.
0: Yeah, absolutely. He's the alien on board. Um, I I love how the film continues to work on that level. No one, not that no one, people do realize it, but alien is the word, the term that they use is is, represents more than just the xenomorph. It's represents the the corporate um, presence. It represents mother in some ways and it represents Ash, but it also represents us. We are the alien on board. Andy Rouse says his portrayal of Ash always blew me away because of the little nuances he created, the running in place, the tiny facial expressions you only catch if you're looking. And my favorite is his subtle reaction when Ripley questions his statement about still collating.
1: Still collating. (laughs) I love that. Uh, the running in place too Yeah, what a great little weird ass moment That I, 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 I guess I'm assuming that's to like make sure that the f- suit is maneuverable enough for him but it's it's, just, it's so weird you know, well, maybe I, I to that. get
0: their circuits I mean maybe like us they have a, a circulatory system but their circuits need to be moved not yeah. in the way that we need to do it but in a way that they need to maybe it's like the, the movement keeps him energized it keeps whatever battery he has powered I don't know how yeah. to recharge um, but
1: you know what? I wish I could I wish we could ask Ian Holm that. Can you imagine if we've been able to get him on the show? Uh, how how amazing would that have been?
0: Rest in peace, Ian Holm. Yeah, seriously, rest
1: in peace, Holman. Ian Holm. Sir Ian Holm. Um uh Brendan Luttmer. Our buddy Brendan says, I believe that had it not been for him portraying the character of Ash so well, one of the main focal points of the film, which is learning the company's true motives, the realization of the company's sinister plan would have had much less of a claustrophobic vibe to it. Learning that the company didn't care for the lives of the crew and only wanted the creature to be brought back was in my opinion, way more impactful when the face of the company was found out to be this Android who reflected so well, what Ripley and the rest of the crew probably would have felt the company truly cared about during that realization that being that, that that being to bring back the creature and that their lives were expendable. He played a major part in Alien and that movie would not have been the same without him. Amen, Brendan Lutmer.
0: Yeah, yeah. And it also makes me, again, the idea of what is being human. It's something we just discuss um, on this show, but certainly on our other show. But, a lot on Shoulder Ryan. But what the what not being human is, is... What when we move away from that is a lack of empathy, where you things are happening and you're seeing them and you don't care, you don't give one shit and you're only concerned with your own well being. And that's when we become scary. And that's what Ash represented was our own lack of humanity. And we see that lack of humanity at play. In play in certain leaders of our country and other countries. And it's terrifying. It's terrifying to know people who don't give one shit about you and they only care about their own pocketbooks and their own welfare. Um, and and that's exactly who Ash was representing totally Uh, Jason Romeo Ledger what's up Jason good friend of ours the thing about Ian and the rest of the cast is that they're always going to be there for us when we need them life has its duration but cinema is forever that's
1: a strangely pointed line from Jason who has made a thing of giving us the funniest comments (laughs) on every single fucking thing that we read on uh, our
0: friend (laughs) Ryan Zayda an android which I think is funny
1: (laughs) classic no but Jason you're absolutely right and I'm glad that you specifically brought up you know Sir Ian Holm because I feel like um, he really will be here forever with us something that I wanted to mention earlier that I'll bring up super briefly now um, as we're closing the rest of these is that you know I mentioned on our little In Memoriam episode last week or video episode how um, whenever I've seen Ian Holm in things since I saw Alien I felt like I was seeing sort of like a family member or like an old friend or somebody that like meant something very personal to me um, and I was realizing how like I, they're, they're outside of Sigourney Weaver and nobody else in the film does that for me really. Like, like I've seen Tom Scarrett in a million things and I never had this feeling of like, oh my God, you know, it's Dallas, he's back. Or like, you know, or, you know I, I've seen Veronica Cartwright and things and I've never been like, oh my God, it's Lambert. But when I, see, when I see Ian Holman things, I really feel like, oh my God, that's Ash. Like he's, he's back again. And yeah. I don't know what that is. Yes. Something about the indelibility of that yeah. performance to me. And it's only him and Sigourney for me in that movie. Yeah. Oh, that yeah. When I've seen them in things, I feel like this heart wrenching like, feeling of like, oh, like they're mine. You know, like this is- I, I feel I have that way about to
0: um, Tom Skerritt though, about Dallas. You when do? I see Tom Skerritt, I think, oh, that's Dallas. Like yeah. he has such a, there's something indelible about him. Um, I feel like him and Ripley were this kind of team the way Ripley and Hicks became a team in Aliens. Um, and so when I see him or I see him whatever, walking around or not walking around cause I don't live near him, but <laughs> if I see him like on the red carpet or being interviewed, I feel like, Hey, it's Dallas. Yeah. Um, and I still view Veronica Cartwright as um, Lambert for whatever reason, but I don't feel that way about others.
1: Interesting. Interesting.
0: Again, it's, it's the, it's what cinema does to us.
1: It does. And, and, and you're right, Jason cinema is forever. Uh, Andy gate girl says, I think he gives the finest performance in the film. He mastered the art of subtlety, injecting just enough off-kiltered mannerisms to throw us off without us being privy as to why. When we're finally let in on the secret, the most horrific aspect is the betrayal we feel right along with Ripley. That's a great point. It's the utter lack of emotion that's truly terrifying. Ash remains the most frightening representative of the quote unquote monster for me in the film. His performance was remarkable. That's a really good point because when we, we are also betrayed, right? And that's a whole separate thing we haven't even talked about. Working narratively in this film is that we're being lied to along with the crew, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is so fucking cool.
0: Yeah, I'll read the next two. Uh, yeah. Alistair Tan says, Kane's son," an underrated line. Yeah, sure. Yeah, it's it's quick, but it's monumental. Cain's son. What he's saying, um, "Clara Feifei, our friend who's been on the show many times and contributor." Our special contributor. I always thought Ian Holmes' acting as exquisite. His decisions to portray Ash from sleeping in the su- cryopod with his arms by his side, and his matter-of-fact mannerisms when delivering the technical knowledge of William Gitani protocols, even when covered in flour milk and a manner of all sorts when portraying Ash, as just a head are. It's just a head are amongst the most memorable and quoted in the series. Even though we are supposed to view Ash as the enemy and evil, Alex White had introduced a different point of view to me a few years ago, which which has stuck with me. Ash is just following the orders as he makes one last comment on the whole ordeal to Ripley. He is at his most sincere, which we just discussed. One last thing, I can't lie to you about your chances, but you have my sympathies. He's smiling, not out of spite, it isn't emotion, it isn't an emotion robots are capable of he's not, he's no guilty than a toaster delivering b- delivering burnt toast when you turn when you turn to its tight setting as intended. he feels released from the burden of carrying out special order ninety nine three seven and risking the life of his crew. You see this relief he is now free. Ian Holmes, throughout my favorite sci-fi films. Ian home is throughout my favorite sci-fi films Alien and the Fifth element. We truly have lost a great man I want to address. If he can't feel spite, then I don't think he can feel relief.
1: Yeah, I don't think he feels relief either.
0: Um, I, I think it's. I think he's at the end of his mission. He's at. He's at. The end game, and he's saying, "Okay, I've fulfilled my mission, and this is the last bit of information I'm telling to you. Good luck."
1: But it is amazing, though, that in that moment. It's a very human interaction, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. and and I think and regardless of whether or not like he's feeling any genuine sense of like you know relief from it, there is something really profound in that final soliloquy that I'm really glad Clara is is bringing back up again because it's interesting that once his mission is done, he leaves them with almost a blessing and a benediction, you know, mm-hmm. and 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 he means it. He's not he's not conniving and he's not lying about it. And in fact, the whole rest of the film, he's he's not. He's not actually evil. Like he's just an appliance. He's the tip of the spear, like we were saying, right? Yeah, he's doing what
0: he was made to do.
1: And that's really scary because, like, there's obvious corollaries with just following orders. You know, and 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 the trials of the Nazis, you know, at Nuremberg after the war. I I mean, like, there there are very clear parallels in history with with people who are basically just reducing themselves through dehumanization Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. of themselves and others to being appliances, to being cogs in in a machine, right? So that's something that we can recognize, I think, in other people and be really afraid of. And I think Ash is just such a great representation of that. Um, Wrapping these up here, Aaron Kidd says, I thought the stark contrast between dirty space truckers and this isolated, proper erudite was perfect. Every fiber of his character was foreign or alien in context to his shipmates. A stroke of genius or luck, taking his character beyond what the audience already felt about his alien demeanor, cemented his character and androids in the Weyland-Yutani film universe for the long haul. There hasn't been a single alien film without some nod, to art, without some nod at artificial intelligence. Without Ian Holmes, Ash, and by extension David Eight, we would have never seen Alien Engineers or Paradise. And let's face it, even if you hate Covenant, seeing David win angered and unsettled you
0: let's just read the rest our friend Michael Scudieri says what an amazing actor he could go from playful and childlike to horrifyingly arresting one of my favorite things he said I believe it's from his autobiography that he never understood the method acting he always kept in mind that acting is just playing make-believe instead of being overly serious about his profession he preferred to to just have fun. And that's palpable in his performance. Oh yeah. And he could conjure yeah. that right away. And I think the method actors, everyone's different. It takes them a while to get to a place where they can embody their roles. They're all different that way.
1: Totally. And method acting obviously is a huge spectrum. It's it's not like one thing, right? There's all these, you know, all these different schools of thought around that, but, but, but the idea of relying on sense memory versus the idea of trying on a second skin and performing something um, are very different, and you see a, a lot of English actors of his generation. Another very notable one being, um, oh my God, what the f- Anthony Sir Anthony Hopkins, right? Like Anthony Hopkins has his his he. You know, consistently derides people who try to get too into character, who you know go into method acting, like the the people we think of, like Daniel Day Lewis, who sort of stay in character throughout a film shoot, et cetera. Because to him, he just reads a script enough that you've memorized it and you know it inside and out, and then you basically do an impression of what this character is going through, mm-hmm. and then you leave for the day and you go home and you play piano and drink wine, right? And I think that for um for a lot of thespians in British history in the second half of the 20th century that was the way that they were trained and that was something that they did extremely well and they also just read lines like fucking nobody's business Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right a lot of method acting is associated with sort of mumbling through lines or trying to kind of like get out of the way of the language and sort of just kind of let things happen And, and through eyes and through nuance and through expression communicate a lot sort of a lot of subtext right um, and, and you see that with a lot of, you know, method actors adopting accents or wearing masks or making it harder to understand. Marlon Brando being p- the perfect example, right? He's a Stanislavski-trained method actor who was, you know, trained, at, you know, in New York in, in the 1940s, and when he made it big, he was almost impossible to understand. You still watch things that he was in, you yeah. know, like on the waterfront, Street Named Desire, and if you tell him I did the all the time, I don't know what exactly yeah. you think, yeah. and yet yeah. he's amazingly powerful in that, right? Because he's acting from this inner place that's kind of being transmitted outward. British actors like Sir Anthony Hopkins and Sir Ian Holm were really good at putting on a second skin and in doing so performing the text in a way that was unmistakable, right? The text was doing the work for them. And And I I feel like that's a different school thought. Yeah.
0: But I also think that British, the whole, the whole system there, the most of those, a lot of those people are immersed in theater their entire lives. They are always performing a role always on stage. So for them, they would click right into it. Whereas for Americans, a lot of Americans who are actors, who, are, who become actors, they weren't in theater. Some of them were, a lot of them weren't. So it takes them a while to get to that place where they feel like they can perform. Whereas with the British, their culture is surrounded by theater. All of it is performance. Um, I mean, in terms of uh, the earliest, I mean, Shakespeare, I mean, the, the birth of theater is almost uh, the heart of England in, in some ways, in terms of their arts culture. Um, so it, it makes sense.
1: It does, but uh, but not to make this too big of a point. It makes sense in terms of what kind of theater we're talking about, because in uh, you know as an as an as an actor in America, it, which is what what I was doing for a lot of my earlier life, like we did theater all the time, but it was largely you know American playwrights. It was largely postmodern theater. It was a lot of you know like it was our town, right? It was or it was something comedic or was something kind of you know off off the wall, kind of abstract, experimental, blah 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 blah. blah. Uh, like there's a very strong tradition in British theater of starting with classics and starting with Shakespeare and starting with, you know, Tudor era stuff so that you get really good at getting through difficult language in a way that's really clear. And and then you kind of build your whole like, you know, career out from that. But it's, it's, I think it's the types of theater that we are raised in, you know, depending and, and I think you, you really see that and the performances, of a lot of British actors in home being one of them. Last comment from good old Darren Gold. I don't know why everybody's getting a, a southern accent tonight but darren gold says uh, <laughs> it says a lot about sir ian's acting skill that i have repeatedly heard people saying holy shit darren uh, i should say used uh, various asterisks and things to i'm, I'm sorry I'm, I'm making it explicit I'm, I'm gonna go ahead and say it he technically said should dollar sign a prostrate uh, hashtag t uh that was the same guy when they learned that bilbo was ash or vice versa Even in my mind, a guy that stays and watches the credits and pays attention to such things, he melted into each character. This also means that going down his IMDb credit list is a series of, oh yeah, moments. He immersed himself in each part and became the character. His subtle, vague quirkiness as Ash was perfect and became even more perfect after you discovered get it we 're getting a live comment here um, requesting more of my uh, my southern accent um, we 'll see about that a lot of ashes um, <laughs> That's uh, no, Sean yeah. uh, Ash was uh, perfect and became even more perfect after you discovered the character 's true nature pushing you to rewatch the film just for his performance with new eyes. totally true. I am sad he has passed, but I am also thrilled that he left such a long Elegant and distinguished library of work for us to enjoy. And Darren, 100% with you on that. And, and I still stand by what I said when we did that live video episode that I'm using this as an opportunity, just like I did with Rucker's passing, to dive into things that I haven't seen him in or things that I'd forgotten that he had done. Because when you lose an actor like this who has a lifetime of incredible work behind them, there's just so much to explore and so much to appreciate and so much to love. And again, if you haven't seen him in Chariots of Fire, you know, do that. Wow. If you haven't seen him in Fifth Element, do that. Um, and if you haven't seen him in the Lord of the Rings films, obviously do that as well, because he, he has been in a number of extraordinarily important movies in film history.
0: Yeah. And with that, I mean, I think uh, we're, we will probably, this has been certainly a springboard for us to talk about David, to talk about Bishop, in ways that we haven't before. We haven't devoted any episodes to Bishop um, or to David. We're, we probably will ha- have a Covenant series at some point. We've tackled every, se- every film of the original trilogy has their own series. Now we're on Prometheus and eventually we'll get to Covenant, but we'll have these. We series. come in. Yep. We'll have these uh, discussions. I can't wait to talk more about David now. I'm very, and Walter and sort of what they mean together and all of those things. I'm very excited about that. But I would say for now it's been almost two hours that we've been recording. Thank you guys for watching. Thank you for listening. Thanks to our patrons. Um, If you want to sign up, you can sign up for $2. Like we said at the beginning, go to perfectorganism.com forward slash support, sign up. Uh, We got a lot of things to announce this year, some exciting things and yeah. Anything else, Patrick?
1: No, I just, uh, I want to personally call attention to the fact that I made it this entire extremely long episode without, barfing my Mexican food up. I feel very proud in this moment. Don't even say it. Um, No, but I I really feel... I feel like Arnold Schwarzenegger. (laughs) I feel feel really lucky that, um, you know, part of me feels really sad that we keep losing these amazing actors. And part of me feels really lucky that we love these films and these fandoms where we have the chance to revel in the masterclasses of acting Mm -hmm. that we have. And that, like, to... Just so, you know, I was sharing a poem uh, by Khalil Gibran with, with Jamie before we started about friendship, um, and there's this really amazing quote. I, you know, I still have it pulled up. I'm going to show you this one quote. Um, it says, When you part from your friend, you grieve not. For that which you love most in him may be clearer in his absence, as the mountain to the climber is clearer from the plain. And let there be no purpose in friendship, say the deepening of the spirit. For love that seeks aught but the disclosure of its own mystery is not love but a net cast forth, and only the unprofitable is caught. So when it says for that which you love most, may be clearer in the absence, to me sums up everything about this moment and everything about the last two years with the loss of of a few really important actors to us, but also with people like Bill Paxton and, and these, you know, people that we've just lost over the you know the last five or six years. Um when they are gone, it's almost like only then do you realize the actual enormity of their contribution to things, because only then can you see the outline left by their absence. Only then can you see the void, right? And Ian Holm is somebody who I never for a minute thought about his death. Like I I never I never considered that as an as a as a thing because even though I knew he was getting older, like he was Ian Holm, you know, he was acting yeah. and was youthful. Sure how old and,
0: he was! I thought maybe he was in his mid seventies. I, I would have thought in his mid seventies, late seventies. Yeah, you
1: know? I had, I had, it just wasn't on my radar or something to be concerned <laughs> about. You know, mm-hmm. um, and and because of that, I think I kind of took him for granted. You know, um, and I, I, really hope that we remember continually as a fan family to um, to try to see the shapes left by people before they no longer occupy them. Mm-hmm. And to try to continually appreciate these performances and help each other to find new performances and things too. Because if, if you're listening to this podcast, you're a huge film nerd. I'm sorry to break that to you. I don't know if, if anybody's told me that, but you're probably a big fucking film nerd. And um, and it's sort of like our duty to keep those fires alive by watching those performances and talking about them. And um, and Sir Ian Holm is somebody who has given us a, an, an enormous amount of wonderful conversations to have. And we are more aware of his absence than ever. And, and I am more thankful for his legacy than I ever have been.
0: Absolutely. Good words to leave on. Thank you, everyone, again, for watching. And uh, we'll be back with you again soon. Thanks, guys. For more on Perfect Organism, the Alien Saga podcast, please visit perfectorganism.com. Perfect Organism is available for listen or download through Podbean, iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. If you'd like to support the show, please visit perfectorganism.com forward slash support. Thank you.